and welcome to Resilience, the global adaptation podcast, the show where we'll be exploring the best solutions and cutting edge technologies for adapting to climate change. From floating cities to flood resilient farms to forest seawalls, we're coming to you from the UN's Global Adaptation Network. I'm Liz Mullen Bernhardt. And I'm Marcus Neild. In our podcast, we'll be talking to the most renowned adaptation experts, but we'll also be traveling around the world, virtually of course, to meet people and communities on the front lines to learn about how they've built resilience on the ground. We're really excited to share some amazing climate success stories with you. Thanks for being here as we adapt to climate change one conversation at a time. 2021 has been dominated by a few major crises. The climate emergency and COVID-19 have collided and rocked societies all over the world. At the same time, 2021 brings an unprecedented opportunity to build back after the COVID pandemic while doing something about the impacts of climate change. In this episode, we'll talk about how resilience towards one crisis can lead to more resilient societies in general, ready for other kinds of shocks. And there are some pretty neat examples of how COVID-19 recovery plans are being integrated into schemes to address climate change. Let's take Pakistan. The government has employed 65,000 people who lost their jobs during the pandemic to plant trees to both mitigate and adapt to climate change. It's part of their ambitious 10 billion tree tsunami program. That's amazing because you've got a country managing one crisis, COVID, which has both health and economic impacts, and they chose to deal with it in a way that helps to battle the climate crisis at the same time. And it's interesting to think about how the climate crisis and the COVID crisis share key similarities. Both require complex modeling to predict impacts, both highlight global and domestic inequalities, and both require investments to build resilience. If you want to find out more about the links between COVID and adaptation, then definitely check out the Adaptation Gap Report 2021. So today our main guest is Coco Warner. She's one of the lead authors of the IPCC report, and she's at the UN Climate Change Secretariat. She manages their vulnerability subdivision, and Coco is going to explain to us what that actually entails. We close adaptation knowledge gaps by connecting policy and experts who are at the front lines of climate change impacts. That includes the GAN network, hundreds of other knowledge partners, including indigenous peoples and local communities. And by closing adaptation knowledge gaps, the work I lead at UNFCCC helps countries scale up adaptation action and build resilience of people and nature. Great. Now, 2021 has been a huge year. With the climate conference in Glasgow coming up and the world still battling with COVID-19, why is it so urgent to focus on resilience and adaptation as we recover from the pandemic? The COVID pandemic has stressed most of our systems. It's put food supply systems under pressure. It's been a major stress to livelihoods all across the world. And the pandemic has really revealed how important our underlying support systems are for weathering these storms, whether the storm is a storm, a rainstorm or a snowstorm or an economic storm. The pandemic has really brought it all together. We're also, again, in the midst of a year full of forest fires and flash floods and all kinds of adverse impacts, many of which have to do with climate change. And we're really learning with the pandemic how interconnected our systems really are, social, natural, financial. 
So to, to really stress, this is the time to focus on building resilience, natural resilience, taking care of our ecosystems, really taking care of them, not assuming we'll always have fresh water, that we'll always have groundwater, not assuming that if we don't change our ways, the pollinators will always pollinate the wheat fields and the fruit trees. So we really have some work to do in stewarding nature. We need to, and that requires investment. We need to do the same with our social systems. I think those countries and areas that have over the past decades invested in things like health systems and education. You don't think, when you think about climate change and resilience, you don't first of all think of clinics and schools, but those things are so important so that people have that underlying buffer. They have health. They have an access to information and they're educated and they know what to do and they can act and they can cooperate together. Those are things that we need to further bolster. The pandemic is an example of something that affects all of us. Climate change shares some of those characteristics. It affects all of us. It's different in different places, but we will increasingly need buffer and capacity. And um, now is the time to invest. And we already know about so many of the good areas to invest in. And it's a wonderful time. Um, and it will bring a lot of rewards. The areas that I just uh, mentioned make countries better. They make countries more resilient to a number of stresses. Thanks so much, Coco. I think you've you've really touched on so many amazing topics that, that are interlinked this year, so many crises that are coming at us at the same time. In this year, 2021, what are you hoping to see come out of COP26? So what does COP26 need to deliver? Essentially, COP26 in Glasgow, it will be our first COP since Madrid at the end of 2019. Then, then we had the pandemic. So it really must deliver scaled up climate action across mitigation. That means pulling greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere or not even getting them into the atmosphere. It means adaptation. It means support. And that also means addressing social and economic aspects of climate action. These areas are interlinked technically, politically. Um, again, just a tip of the hat to things that we've learned about COVID-19, something that we are only beginning to talk about when we talk about ambitious adaptation action is who are the people who have to take that action? At the end of the day, every action is mostly directed to a person, whether it's a ministry official, whether it's a farmer, um, or whether it's a person living in a city. Adaptation is undertaken by people, and we need, um, we need to do a lot more to understand who needs to do the action, what do they care about, who's in their reference networks, who matters to those people, because acting together, people mostly do what they see other people doing. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with family members, friends, you know, colleagues. They say, oh, climate change is so big, but nobody's doing anything about it. And if I do something, it doesn't make any difference. Um, and so there's a sense that we, we need to shift that. So COP26 needs to deliver ambition, and it also needs to land in the minds and hearts of the many people around the world who are going to be watching. And people really need to know what do they need to do, 
and what actions do we need to take collectively? So just a little finer tip on what needs to be delivered. As I said, ambition in both mitigation and adaptation action, one of the ways that that is represented is in nationally determined contributions and national adaptation plans, of course, finance, transparency in mitigation. Um, and then in the Paris Agreement, there's one bit, transparency is one of those, but there's another bit that hasn't yet been fully negotiated, and that's called Article 6. That's the market-based mechanisms that might provide efficient and coordinated ways. Uh, may, could be carbon markets, could be other tools, but that still needs to be kind of hammered out. So those are things on the agenda for a very busy, very full COP26. Article 6 is key to helping transfer funds to poorer countries to help them adapt. Do you think we're going to see progress on it at COP26? You know, um, in Madrid, uh, it's a very technical discussion. And happily, they have very technical people negotiating it. So um, the solutions are, as in many things, known. And what would get Article 6 over that threshold is the political will. And that won't surprise anybody. Um, so, yes, I hope so. <laughs> Most definitely. We have all of the pieces are on the table. And what's needed now is the political will to say, yeah, this, we're going to do this. You mentioned national adaptation plans. Um, what are national adaptation plans and do they provide an opportunity for recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic? National adaptation plans are exactly what the name implies. Every country, but especially developing countries, have the opportunity to write a plan for their adaptation. And putting together that plan itself is a very important conversation. If you look around the world, you have examples of countries bringing all kinds of ministries together, not just the environment ministry, finance, agriculture, water, et cetera, et cetera. They bring, you know, they have this multi-sectoral conversation. What are the challenges and what does our country prioritize to make those adjustments so that, you know, the action will be commensurate with these impending climate change impacts. So a national adaptation plan, let's say you're a developing country. The UNFCCC has a financial mechanism. One of, one of the parts of that landscape is called the Green Climate Fund. And the, and the GEF as well, UNEP um, stewards the Global Environmental Facility. So when a country creates a plan that can actually have lots of detail in it, and that detail lets finance institutions know what a country's priorities are. And the UNFCCC, as many United Nations processes, is led by countries. The United Nations is there to help countries coordinate, to provide a table that gathers all of the countries together so that they can talk about these um, issues of common interest. And so what that means for the UNFCCC finance mechanism if a country comes with their national adaptation plan, that essentially provides a kind of blueprint to let that finance institution know these are the things that the country considers its priorities. And that helps in facilitating finance towards those activities are really important. And of course, UNFCCC is hoping that more and more countries will articulate what their plans are. 
So it's both a plan to be implemented in that country and a tool to help countries send a signal to finance institutions what types of adaptation need to be prioritized. Coco, I'm curious to know, what, what do you think is the single biggest thing in adaptation right now that no one is talking about? I think one of the most important things in adaptation that no one is talking about is um, people who have to adapt and what they care about and what gets in the way of adapting um, in specific terms. So there's, there's a bit of a bundle, but people are trying to get through the, through the day. Um, when I was a researcher, I spent many years out in countries. Sometimes I was on farms. Sometimes I was on boats with people who were fishing for their livelihoods in tons of meetings. And when people talk about their lives, they have lots of things in common. They're trying to get their kids through school, put food on the table, make sure there's medicine for their kids and their parents, and maybe save a little bit for a rainy day. That's common everywhere. And all of us are confronted by climate change impacts in different ways. And um, here we are in the international world, dealing with countries and talking about adaptation plans. And what happens or what needs to happen is that those plans are taken up and that they're implemented. So in the work that I lead on adaptation knowledge, what we need to know is what knowledge is actually relevant? What bits aren't known that would be relevant for any of us who actually need to adapt? And I think that's the big piece that's missing. Let me, because we're talking about resilience and COVID, let me give you an analogy. I've been reading a lot of research papers coming out lately about social norms and COVID-19 measures. And when you think about the pandemic, public health officials often talk about maybe three or four really specific things. Wearing masks, we've all been confronted with that recommendation. Getting a vaccination, some people do, some people are hesitant keeping physical distance. If you're waiting in a line, you make sure that there's a whole bunch of space between you and the next people. And then similarly, maybe staying at home and not circulating among large groups of people, things like that. Very, very specific. Now, some people do those things and some people don't. But what we're learning is the success of the policies, the public health policies, depend a lot on the people who have to take them up. If everybody gets vaccinated or if everyone complies with wearing masks or keeping physical distance, there's a desirable outcome. And that's what policymakers want. And so in the last year or so, public health officials have been trying to find out more and more about why do people do what they do? Why do they follow the policies or why do they not? And my guess is that's what we're going to need for adaptation. That means we need to get more specific and to take advantage of our amazing networks and find out more, what do farmers care about? What do people care about when it comes to a variety of behaviors in cities, when it comes to heat? What do people care about in coastal communities? Let's say you've got mangroves and you know one solution is to keep the mangroves in place and to protect them. But we don't do that all over the world. What would it take? And my guess is that that's going to be the next generation of our work in adaptation. Get really specific, 
understand what's important for people, and then do the work that will help socialize policies that are intended to keep everybody safe and thriving in the face of all of this volatility. Coco, you've touched on some great points there. And I think that that really comes down to the heart of how we are trying to communicate around adaptation, to take some of the, the fear of change out of it, right? But this is, this is what you do when this happens. This is what you can do to prevent this from happening, right? And being very specific and, and, and uh, supporting people to go in the right direction. I love that message that you've, um, you've put out there. And we love working with you to help make that happen. <laughs> uh, Coco, how can our audience find out more about the great work that you're doing? Where would you like to point them to? Yeah, thank you so much. So at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat, we do all of this work with so many stakeholders, including the GAN network, which we appreciate so much. So you can go to our website, unfccc.int, or you can just use a search engine and put in UNFCCC Adaptation Knowledge Hub and become a partner. Takes about two minutes. It's really easy. And then you'll get in touch with me and my team. But um, we really love when partners from all over the world join us, tell us what they're doing. We share that with all of the parties. Those are countries of the UNFCCC. And we would just welcome active engagement. It may mean if you're a university student participating in a project with countries to close adaptation knowledge gaps. We've had some wonderful modeling of sea level rise in the Seychelles done by University of Michigan students, just to name one of a dozen examples. Um, become an active member, come to our meetings, share your ideas. Um, let us put you in touch with uh, countries who may have questions. And that's how you can get engaged. We would appreciate that so much. Coco, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to, to speak to you. We've heard about national adaptation plans. We've got a little bit of a taste of maybe what we can expect at COP26. Coco, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yep, same for me. Thank you and good luck with all your important work. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Liz. I hope many of you are inspired to join their Adaptation Knowledge Hub. I loved that positive conversation with Coco. There are so many lessons we can learn about how we as a society are dealing with COVID-19 and the sort of resilience building that's going to help us continue to adapt to climate change as well. And I really liked what Coco had to say about how those of us who work in adaptation really need to understand better what actually motivates people to adapt or what stops them adapting. This is a parallel that Kobe Brand, the African director for the Global Cities Network, ICLI, also raised when we caught up with her. She discussed this issue of behavioural change when she shared her own very stark example of having to adapt to climate change. We almost faced day zero some five years ago. Day zero was a, a term coined at that stage in Cape Town, which indicated the day that all potable water would not be available to citizens. And we are about um, just under 4 million residents in Cape Town, very much dependent on potable water. And it became very dire. And what we saw happening here was really remarkable, remarkable from many levels. Firstly, at a multi-level governance 
from that perspective, it's never been more apparent how clearly and how wonderfully different levels of government with different competencies and different legal mandates can actually take hands and work together. That manifested from national governments to the water utilities, to provincial governments and to the local authorities. And don't think for a moment it was only Cape Town because Cape Town doesn't get its water from Cape Town itself. It gets its water from the cities and the small towns surrounding Cape Town. So the Western Cape economy is basically an economy of agriculture. And um, many of these individual large farmers had to give up their water rights and their allocations in order to bring more water into the city of Cape Town to serve and keep the taps running, literally, and to serve the citizens of Cape Town. So it was really a whole community taking hands. And the other remarkable aspect of it is that people always say behavioral change takes a long time. And, you know, it's a a very difficult thing to achieve. I also believe it. I preached that myself. I said, be patient. You know, people take a long time to change and get used to new things. But we've seen it now with this example in Cape Town, where the whole community stood together. We have all adapted the way we think and use water. And even now, when we have a very wet and rainy season right now in Cape Town, actually, um, you know, there's more than enough water to see us through a a dry summer ahead. We are much more conscious and our water consumption, although our population has grown, our water consumption is not nearly at the levels it used to be before that very specific drought. So behavioral change can happen very swiftly and very quickly and community-wide. And we've also seen this very same thing happening in COVID responses, that people also thought that it's going to be take a long time to, to adapt to a new type of normal, not that we're anywhere near there, but these changes are possible and people are actually resilient and they can actually adopt to change very, very quickly. An entire city coming together to change its water habits to avert that crisis, that's just awesome. And that's what this Resilience podcast is all about, highlighting and celebrating how people can and often do adapt very quickly in the face of a crisis and can emerge stronger from it. Thanks for listening. There are more adaptation success stories in our other episodes, so please do listen to those, subscribe and share. We're Liz Mullen-Bernhardt and Marcus Neild, and you can find out more about our organisation, the UN Global Adaptation Network, in the show notes. This has been Resilience. Keep adapting. Penny Dale is the producer, 